Welcome to NucleCast, the official podcast of the ANWA Deterrence Center. Each week, we bring you leading nuclear deterrence experts for a lively discussion on current topics. Our host is Dr. Adam Lowther, Director of Strategic Deterrence Programs at the National Strategic Research Institute. The views of the host and the guests are their own. And welcome back to our next edition of NucleCast. Of course, I'm your host, Adam Wilder. And with us today is the distinguished Dr. Brad Roberts. Many of you know him. If you're in the nuclear community, it's hard not to know the name Brad Roberts. So for those of you who don't know who he is, he is, of course, now the director of Lawrence Livermore National Lab's Center for Global Security Research, which is within the DOE lab community, is really one of the great places where strategic thinking is done. So he leads that, uh, that effort. And previously, you may have known him from his time at the Pentagon when he was the DASD for nuclear and missile defense policy from 2009 to 2013. He wrote the Nuclear Posture Review, the Missile Defense Review, and then he spent many years at Ida uh, before that. And of course, he has a PhD from, in international relations from Erasmus University. So he is, of course, a, a well-rounded, all-around good guy. And we're glad that you're on the show. So thanks for being here, Brad. Thank you, Adam. Thanks for the opportunity. And let me just be clear, I am not the lead singer from Crash Test Dummies. <laughs> it's funny that you should say that because... I was uh, I went online just to get a new bio for you, and I put your name in, and I was like, "Crash test dummies." There's Brad right there. That's right. Different guy. So, I wanted to ask you. You've written uh, at CGSR. You've written some monographs on theories of victory, and this is something I think is it's really important, and it's often something we don't really talk about. And as we try to understand what the Russians are doing in the Ukraine, and as we think about China and what they might do in Taiwan, perhaps understanding their theories of victory is really useful. Could you maybe explain for us, for our listeners, what are theories of victory and, and what are the theories of victory of Russia and China? Well, my thinking on this started when I was in the Pentagon and it, uh, 6.45 every morning, the bad news showed up. The, the Defense Intelligence Agency briefing book on the last 24 hours of intelligence about developments in the nuclear and missile capabilities of U.S. adversaries. And I, I got a lot of what was happening, but not why, out of this intelligence. Uh, and, and I began to ask questions about, well, how will they know when they've got enough? What, 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 by what metric are they gauging their progress towards what goal? Uh, and, and this led to uh, a, a multi-year effort to understand the way in which Russia 
conceives of the possibility of fighting a regional war and escaping somehow with its interests intact, maybe even winning. Uh, and and the, the basic I, concept of a theory of victory is that it's it's the causal linkages between ends, ways, and means. So um, the Russian, the, the common theory of victory, Russia, China, and North Korea face a common problem, us, and our conventional superiority and our nuclear capability. And how are they going to fight and win maybe a war that we bring to them? Well, they've set out a, a set of ideas combined with a bit of wishful thinking, uh, but about, about how to do that. Uh, and, and their common ideas are, if war with America looks inevitable, go fast, go hard, create a fait accompli, and present a terrible, the, the image of a terrible price to be paid for trying to reverse the fait accompli. If, however, we think we, we continue to make noises about reversing the fait accompli, then separate, second concept, separate American allies from each other and from the United States. So the US is left to fight alone or not at all. This reduces the likelihood that we would fight. But if we're still coming, third concept is anti-access area denial. You're able to impose costs beyond our willingness to absorb them. And fourth, if we're still coming, well, remind America of the vulnerability of the homeland and it will back down. Why will it back down? And this is the core element of the, the core concept is because of an underlying asymmetry of stake and interest. For Russia and China, wars on their periphery, the war over Taiwan is about a vital interest of China. And their, their assessment is that the US interests at stake may be very important, but not vital in the same way. And thus they can engage in limited acts of escalation to awaken us to this asymmetry of stake, causing us to choose to no longer continue the war and to settle for some outcome dictated by them. Now, as you think about theories of victory and you've explained for us what the Russian and Chinese theories of victory are, and you know, I, as everything I read, your description sounds spot on. And so I wonder, do we have a theory of victory that we operate off of? Not so much. Uh, we have the, um, what, what people fall back on is what uh, the joint operating concept on strategic deterrence defines, the deterrence calculus, the calculus of the by an adversary of the United States, uh, his calculus of the benefits, costs, and risks of different courses of action, including the course of inaction. And our basic theory of victory as a, a U.S. defense community is that we can crank up the cost, we can crank up the risk, we can protect ourselves with missile defense, thereby reducing their perceived benefit of attack, and they'll, they'll bow to the inevitable conventional superiority of the United States. It's, it's an unreliable theory uh, because it doesn't account for that asymmetry of stake. Our general view is their assessment of that asymmetry of stake is wrong that the asymmetry favors us because what we would have at stake in a conflict like this is our reputation as a security guarantor and thus the whole European and Asian security order. Uh, and 
we might have that at stake. But we we have um, well. Let me just summarize my point by saying the the um, the National Defense Strategy Commission, which reviews defense strategies, reported in 2018 that uh, the Trump defense strategy was was generally sound on the mark. Um, but we stood to lose the next war we might have with a major power nuclear armed rival because we had failed to understand at the conceptual level the kind of war we would, we would be fighting and that they would be fighting. That, to me, says we don't have a theory of victory that's up, up to the task. Now, as I've tried to think through this myself, you know, one of the things that, that I see in terms of how either particularly China, but Russia as well, is that the, the first thing they have to do is to make sure the United States and its, its military forces never leave American soil. So that to me means that you, for example, I would think that US Transcom and its networks and its private sector um, contractors and support would be one of the earliest targets in a cyber conflict that our ability to communicate uh, that we would, you know, they would seek to blind us, to make us deaf, and to make us unable to move. And that in, as you said, uh, that enable them to have the time to achieve the fiat accompli. Do you see a war, you know, you, we, they have their theory of victory, but do you see a war playing out and, you know, actually following that, that plan? Well, uh, I think the, the the red theory of victory, of I, as I call it, is premised on a, on a misreading of democracies. Um, in the words of one Russian military analyst writing about the escalate to de-escalate concept, he said, we, 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 we consider the possible employment of theater nuclear weapons in Europe in order to sober, but not to enrage America. They believe there's a sweet spot where you can attack us with nuclear weapons where we decide we don't have a dog in the, in the fight sufficient to run this risk, and we back down. And we might. We're, we're the America of Marine Barracks Lebanon. Kill a lot of us, and we just came home. We're also the America of Pearl Harbor and 9-11. Uh, 913, nine President Bush said, I'm going to go out and take down two countries, two sides. Uh, so um, that notion that you can sober but not enrage America by attacking us with nuclear weapons, pretty risky business. Well, you bring up a good point, and that sort of makes me think to, so I wrote an article here maybe a couple of weeks ago in which I was think I've been in a debate with some physicists from the disarmament community. And we've been going back and forth in the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientist. And so I got to thinking that there's really no point at which we're likely to reach common ground. So the disarmament advocates and then the advocates of modernization and deterrence. And I came to the conclusion that our worldviews, and you know, I would say I, you know, as somebody from the modernization practitioner world, uh, I'm sort of an old school realist with, with a pessimistic view of human nature and, 
versus what I would see many of the, in the disarmament community being sort of Kantian utopians who say, hey, listen, if we have the right institutions, if we set the right standards, the right culture, uh, the right values, then we can reshape, you know, people's views. And there, there's no set human nature. So people are inherently good. And therefore, we can reach this world in which there, you know, we will never have nuclear weapons and we will never use them. But this is sort of a view that that I hold. And I'm, I'm curious as somebody who spent as much time in, in D.C., in the bowels of the Pentagon, working these issues for decades, do you think that there's any, you know, is there any truth to my argument or do you think I'm, you know, barking up the wrong tree? Well, your, your argument included the words, in each of these camps, there are many people who. Uh, and, and I agree that, that there are many people who believe those two sets of things and that they are uh, not going to converge. I think the nuclear policy debate is populated by a lot of other views too. Sure. Uh, and um, I find that it's possible to disagree with members of the disarmament community about the plausibility of eliminating nuclear weapons, but to agree about the value of reducing nuclear dangers and risks and the, to the extent possible. Sure, uh, So I find some, some possibilities for common ground and my uh, thinking about this is shaped by my experience as a staffer to the Strategic Posture Commission of 2008 mm -hmm. and nine, where I watched uh, a group of Democrats and Republicans divided in the usual partisan way, uh, disagree about almost everything because in the nuclear community, we really like to do that. We really <laughs> like to disagree. We focus on the things we disagree about. We forget the things we agree about. And at a certain moment in, in the Posture Commission, uh, it, it, was, it was time to, to, to ask, is there really nothing that you can agree about? And, sure. and if so, you're not doing the job that Congress asked you to do, which was to identify uh, a strategy going forward that could enjoy bipartisan support. And, and then, well, yes, we actually agree about a lot. We, we the two camps in the commission. Um, and, and that became the, the, the report that said the United States should uh, use political measures to try and reduce and eliminate nuclear weapons. But so long as nuclear weapons remain, it should have the, the military means to protect itself, including through in-kind deterrence. And that balanced approach, everybody in the room could sign up for. And so we, we, we don't talk about the things we agree about as a political community. We talk about the things we disagree about. And I think that skews our view. Well said. I appreciate that. That's a great answer. So let, let, me add one, one other, let me add one other thought which is, in my experience, there are a whole lot of people interested in nuclear policy today who don't care about the two camps, who, who may care, but they're not beholden to either. They want to be smarter about these things. They don't want to be sold an answer. They want to be able to form their own judgment. But there's a constituency, constituency forming that's interested in new thinking and not becoming hostage to one or another prior way of thinking. Excellent. Maybe we'll see some progress then. Maybe. 
This episode of NucleCast is brought to you by the AMLA Deterrence Center, whose mission is to educate Americans about the nuclear enterprise and strategic deterrence. Your response makes me think back to your book, uh, The Case for Nuclear Weapons in the 21st Century, in which, you know, by all accounts, you know, most of us in this relatively small community read it. We all have an annotated copy. And uh, so as you look into the future, I sort of two questions. Do you think we'll ever actually see a world without nuclear weapons? And then if we were to see that world, it, is it a world that we actually want? Because one, you know, one of the main arguments is if we eliminate nuclear weapons, then we return to an era of great power wars, a la you know the 20th century, and that was roughly 90 million people killed in the two great wars. And so, you know, will we see it this period of without them? And and what do you think that period looks like? Well, that's a great question to which, of course, I don't know the answer. <laughs> um, I mean, I, uh, the Posture Commission in 2009 said something that sounded right to me, which was that world won't be possible without a fundamental transformation of the international political system. Is a fundamental transformation possible? Of course. We've, we've in history, transformed the, the world order in many ways over time. Uh, and we did have a transformative and positive moment in 1989 that lasted two or three decades. Um, so I, I don't rule out as utterly implausible changes of a kind and character that make it possible for the nuclear armed states to conclude that they're better off without nuclear weapons. I think it's highly unlikely anytime soon. And by soon, I mean time measured in century, not, not decades or, or years. But I don't rule it out uh, out of question. But I think we're trending in the wrong direction. And one one microscopic indicator is that book. Uh, each year since it came out, you know, most books come out and they sell the most number of copies their first year. Well, uh, fortunately for me, but unfortunately <laughs> for the world, I'm selling more copies of that book each year. And generally, the sales are increasing by bulk of twenty. Meaning more more and more people, more and more courses are being taught that that address these topics. Uh, And uh, there's a return of nuclear deterrence and nuclear policy questions to the normal political discourse that was simply missing for for 30 years. And and that for the prior 30 years was skewed by the Armageddon-like risks that we faced. And nuclear weapons are just going to be a part of the world we live in for the foreseeable future. And that requires that we be smart about them and disciplined in our thinking and policy. And what do you think, let's suppose hypothetically we get rid of them. Is there a way to prevent great power wars in the future, which, you know, in many respects scared us into creating them in the first place? The short answer seems to be no. The, the long answer seems to be 
major power war in Europe, major power competition and conflict in Europe brought war for 300 years. And then we had a long spell without it, in part protected by nuclear weapons. So I think um, uh, major powers are going to find it very difficult to go without nuclear weapons in the kind of world we live in. But it's not inconceivable to me that, that they could arrive at a place where they conclude uh, that, that, that they don't need them anymore because either they have substitute means or the conflicts that they envisioned as making these deterrents necessary are, are no longer plausible. I wonder, you know, you mentioned in the, when you described theories, red theory of victory, and this clear fear of uh, American conventional capability. And so, you know, just as I've tried to think through this over the you know, past 10 years or so, I wonder, you know, we talk about elimination of nuclear weapons, but we never talk about reduction of offensive capabilities in terms of the United States. So reducing the very capabilities that drive adversaries to want to build nuclear weapons. Is, is, do you see any, you know, any discussion, any appetite for so trying to mitigate this drive for nuclear weapons by, you know, making the Department of Defense truly a Department of Defense? <laughs> well, I'm not sure where you're going with that question. Um, yeah. Do you see any utility in reducing the offensive capability of the, of the U.S. military such that perhaps China or Iran or North Korea who fear our conventional capabilities would? Uh, I, I don't think, well, I think President Putin's fear of NATO mm -hmm. was um, uh, came at a time when NATO had no military threat, posed no military threat to Russia. The, the threat that President Putin perceives is more ideological and political. It's to the legitimacy of his regime. It's the color revolution threat. I don't really think he believes that NATO is going to try and ro roll in across the, the borderlands and march to Moscow to plant uh, the NATO flag and uh, having taken down the Russian flag. I don't think he believes that. I think he's um, uh, his... his his way of governing and the society he's been trying to create are simply threatened by free and successful Western societies, democracies. I would say there's a similar argument about President Xi. And so we, we had uh, a long period of, um, of um, laissez-faire towards the military modernization of Russia and China. Um, we didn't have a dominant well, we allowed our position of conventional dominance to erode, and yet they are more fearful than ever. So I don't see that that um, disarming the offense uh, and retreating behind a, a, a Star Wars-like uh, shield uh, would, would bring peace to America. I think it would um, be provocative to others and... Um, uh, I don't think it would increase our security.
Yeah, good point. So it, you, you mentioned Russia, and I, you know, I've wondered in terms of the use of tactical nuclear weapons, because as I assess it, I really don't see the use of strategic nuclear weapons as is probable. But the use of one or a small number of tactical nuclear weapons, you know, for example, as a demonstration strike, whether it be in a rural area, you know, near the Sawaki Gap, or you know, in in advance of you know uh, carrier strike groups moving to the defense of Taiwan, that something to that effect, um, that low yield, low damage. Uh, very much that, you know, fiat accompli that, hey, we're very serious. This is a, you know, a, a, this is a vital interest to us kind of an, a use as possible. But I'm curious what your take on in what you think might be a, a potential use of nuclear weapons. Well, I, like you, think that the uh, used by any of the major nuclear powers of their strategic forces is highly unlikely. Uh, to employ these weapons in time of war is to start uh, Armageddon-like strategic exchanges, and no, no one wins. Uh, the question is, do any of the states armed with theater capabilities or tactical capabilities um, think differently at that level? Uh, and I, I think President Putin might, probably does, believe that uh, the limited employment of nuclear weapons uh, creates uh, uh, dilemmas for the United States about how to respond. We, they, Russia can attack without attacking the American homeland, the United States to counter attack the, America, the Russian homeland. That gets problematic. So... Um, I worry about the possibility that uh, the theories of victory of Russia, China, and North Korea include um, strikes to sober but not enrageous, to quote the, uh, the, the Russian author again. Uh, that, that this idea that there's a sweet spot where you can do enough damage with a nuclear weapon to influence our calculus of cost and risk, but not so much as to motivate us to do terrible things in response, um, I, th I think that's a dangerous fallacy. But um, overall, it seems to me that the possessors of nuclear weapons want them principally for purposes of self-defense and coercion, uh, and, and that there are pretty strong fire breaks to the employment of nuclear weapons, uh, not to say they're high enough fire breaks, um, and they, they may be falling, but um, it's conspicuous to me that for all of our concern about nuclear modernization by Russia and China and nuclear developments by North Korea, that um, no one has seen it as wise to precipitate a crisis and to proceed to nuclear employment. And the, the, the caveat to all of this, of course, is, is what about Russia and Ukraine? Uh, and if Russian employment of nuclear weapons outside Ukraine against NATO would be a catastrophe for Russia, what about inside Ukraine? Uh, and the scenario that worries me is one in which uh, Russia decides that the only way to crush 
the two key assets of Ukraine is to employ nuclear weapons. Those assets are the political will of Western publics to support the arming of Ukraine and the political will of the Ukrainian people to resist. Uh, and Russian leaders might be persuaded that the way to crush that will is through multiple nuclear attacks, maybe two on uh, we weapons convoys and two on um, military or civilian targets in Ukraine. Uh, and then to hope that what, what happens is that the resolve of these two groups crumbles. Uh, I'm skeptical it would work out that way. Uh, I don't think the Ukrainian people are going to want to uh, love the Russian government more after that. So uh, I'm skeptical, but I think that is a pathway that's, that's plausible. Now, as we approach the end of the show, with the long and distinguished career that you've had so far, and with us approaching a sort of an unprecedented time in which you know, we, we, we have actual threatened use of nuclear weapons on the part of Vladimir Putin, what, what advice would you give to you know, President Biden, members of Congress, you know, the State Department, the, you know, the DC policy and decision-making community, what, what advice would you give them uh, to help resolve you know, the conflicts that we potentially face these days? Well, I'm not sure it's advice, it's a perspective. And, and that is that um, it seems to me the Biden administration's nuclear posture review, when it comes out, is likely to go down in history as the last of a set. That um, the elements of continuity since the first nuclear posture review of 1994 across five nuclear posture reviews, pretty striking how much continuity there's been. Yes, some important changes in emphasis. Yes, a few shifting priorities, but overall a lot of continuity which shouldn't be terribly surprising because the global environment was largely consistent through that period. Uh, and we were able to put our focus on working with major powers to reduce nuclear risks. Can't do that anymore. I mean, we can, we can try and we may make some incremental progress with them, but Russia and China have not followed the US lead in trying to reduce the role and number of nuclear weapons. Uh, we can um, continue to caretake the vestiges of a nuclear deterrent that was frozen in place in 1991, or we can begin to adapt it to a different security environment. I think we're at a watershed moment uh, of a kind that's equal to the watershed of the end of the Cold War, where many of the assumptions that govern the making of nuclear policy were no longer valid. And with uh, Russian aggression, China's strategic breakout, North Korea's progress in fielding a small nuclear force, uh, et cetera, the fundamental premises that have guided nuclear policy are, are no longer valid. We're moving into a new chapter. Uh, and this means this is, this is a, uh, that nuclear policy is a project we should take seriously. We should uh, want debate because it will sharpen the policy. 
but it should be informed and respectful, which often nuclear policy debate is not. So I'd say a perspective rather than a particular set of actions that might be taken. All right, with that, we will uh, thank the listeners for joining us once again on NucleCast. And of course, I want to thank Brad Roberts. This was undoubtedly an enlightening show. We will, of course, have to have you back. So we appreciate your, oh, you. your thought-provoking ideas and well-conceived. And, you know, if, you've, if for those who have never actually gone to the CGSR website and gone through all of the material that is there, it is a great repository of, of some excellent and well-done research. So I would encourage the listeners to visit CGSR's website. So Thank with that, Brad... Thank you for saying that. It, it, it truly is. So thanks, Brad. Thanks for coming on. And we'll look forward to having you on again soon. It'll be my pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity. Good luck out there, everybody. Go listen to Crash Test Dummies. <laughs> Bye, all. All right. Thanks, Brad. Thanks, Brad.